Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Colin McIntosh, founder and CEO at Sheets and Giggles. Sheets and Giggles is a bedding company that sells the most comfy and sustainable sheets in the world. Their sheets are made from eucalyptus trees, using up to 95% less water than cotton, 30% less energy, and significantly less pesticides. But that's beside the point, because these sheets are softer and more comfortable than any other cotton sheets you can buy. The story behind Sheets and Giggles is nothing short of fascinating. It starts in 2017, when Colin was laid off from his job. And in the episode, we'll hear exactly how this moment crossed paths with starting Sheets and Giggles. We'll also talk about launching one of the most successful projects in Indiegogo's history, when brands should and shouldn't lean into sustainability messaging, how him and his team have been navigating COVID and contributing to efforts across the United States, and much, much more. Everyone, you are in a treat for this episode, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Colin McIntosh, founder and CEO of Sheets and Giggles. Colin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be here, and I appreciate you having me on. Likewise. So, Colin, in all of my interviews, what I like to do is rewind back to the very early days, pre-Sheets and Giggles. So, talk us through, what is Sheets and Giggles? (laughs) Sure. And... What was the Eureka moment? So basically, Sheets and Giggles, for those who haven't heard of us, though I will hold it against you, is a sustainable bedding bedsheet company based in Denver. We make our sheets out of Lyocell, which is a fa- uh, cellulosic rayon fabric, which means basically fabric derived from plants. We use eucalyptus trees as the base wood for our sheets. And so our Lyocell eucalyptus sheets are you know 96% less water used in cotton sheets, 30% less energy, no insecticides, no pesticides. Cotton tend to use anywhere from 16 to 24% of the world's insecticides just by itself as a crop on any given year. And it also uses no arable land. It can grow on non-arable land. You know, it, it's a really, really fantastic product when it comes to sustainability. It's also softer than cotton. You know, it's more breathable. It's cooling. It's a better product overall. And uh, so it's really just been a really fantastic company in terms of the impact that we've had. And, you know, then in terms of the other impact that we have, we, we plant the tree for every single order. We actually just tallied up 2019's orders the other day and planted about 20,000 trees, which is really great. That was our, our first full year in business was 2019. And, you know, planting about 20,000 trees was really, really wonderful. And it was great to do it also during this COVID-19 situation, because not a lot of people are donating right now. And, you know, we were always planning to tally everything up in Q1 and make the big yearly donation in March. And so it was really good timing because we, I actually talked to the organization. It's called One Tree Planted, our partner for that. And they were just beyond thrilled with the donation that day because they said like people in the office were cheering because it was like a big like 20 grand donation that they could use for a bunch of ongoing projects that they're working on. And so that was really cool. And And so it's just been uh, quite the experience. And the Eureka moment, I think, for the company is actually slightly different than what a lot of people you've interviewed are probably going to say and what a lot of listeners are probably used to listening to. I, I love sustainability. Climate change is a huge hot-button topic of mine. It's definitely something that gets me out of bed in the morning. But I am not a purely 
mission-driven founder in the sense of I didn't wake up one day and say, you know, <laughs> wake up one day. That's funny because the bedsheets company. I didn't wake up one day and like feel my cotton bedsheets and be like, this, there has to be a better way. Like, you know, that that stuff I think is um, a little, little trite and a little overblown. Frankly, I got laid off at 1 p.m. on a Monday for my last company, which was a wearable tech startup in Denver. We were fighting sexual assault and violence. That was a mission I was extremely passionate about. I founded that company, co-founded that company with a few friends of mine. I, I wrote the business plan for that back in 2013. We raised some money in 2015, did a Kickstarter, uh, raised a few million dollars, hired 30 people in downtown Denver. We're sold nationwide at Target, Brookstone. We were sold at T-Mobile stores and a few other retailers you'd be familiar with. And unfortunately, we had to lay everybody off at 1 p.m. on a Monday in September 2017. And three weeks later, I founded Sheets and Giggles. And so the the core driver for this was definitely partially mission in the sense of, you know, I've always had a bleeding heart. I've always I've always worked in mission driven organizations, and I uh, really wanted a sustainability focus for my next company if I started my own. And but that being said, I actually built a business model that I was extremely passionate about and felt very secure in. And and I can go into that and do a little detail, but the pieces really lined up to be a compelling business model. And then the product that I could put into that business model, you know, there were a few different categories that I looked at and I owned sheetsgiggles.com because I have a lot of business ideas and I thought it'd be a funny name for a bedsheets company at one point. And bedsheets fit my business model criteria to a T. I started doing materials research and, and conversations with a few different manufacturing partners. I found out about eucalyptus lyocell versus why it's more sustainable than bamboo viscose, why it's more sustainable than cotton, why it's more sustainable than polyester, and then just started sleeping on it, got a few samples made and, and fell in love with it and was off to the races from there. So it's a long story, but that's, yeah, that's it. So I, I want to take a layer back of the onion here around deciding what idea to pursue. So you get laid off from your prior job, and my assumption is you probably had a list of many different ideas. I mean, you were sitting on the Sheets and Giggles domain for a while. <laughs> so when you left, was this the first idea you decided to pursue aggressively, or did you go through like some type of process sifting through different ones? What did that look like? Uh, it was both. So this was the first one that I loved and the one that I had anchored on the most. But I did explore other opportunities. I I own sunglasseshalffull.com. If anybody wants to start a sunglasses. Interesting. Company. Yeah, I own a lot of pun-based domains. I have a few other ideas we can talk about later. But there were a few business models I looked at. Basically, I had just spent three years of my life selling and distributing physical products. Uh, I learned a lot about supply chain operations, physical retail, Amazon sales channel. I learned a lot about e-commerce and, and consumer behavior and pricing theory and, and the, the take you through the criteria. I basically sat down and it was going to be one of two things. I was going to go work at you know Microsoft or somebody like that and not have to deal with not having healthcare or the whole startup nonsense and BS. Not I didn't pay myself for 15 months when I started the company. I had a second job on the side to, to pay my rent. And, you know, it was going to be, forget that life, forget that startup nonsense, go work at a big company, lock yourself into some good health care, get a good salary and have a normal life. Or it was going to be uh, the exact opposite and start my own company where I'm the CEO and decision maker in person who is 
you know, kind of live or die by, by my decisions. And I decided to do the latter because I sat down, I wrote up my, my perfect business model, and it was a massive commodities market with very little brand or product differentiation, with no brand loyalty, that had high repeat purchase rates, and that was a mostly traditionally physical retail company so I could help bring it online with a direct-to-consumer model. And I looked at a few different categories. Like I said, I own cheesegiggles.com. It was funny. Uh, we got, when you get laid off at a one day, uh, one PM on a Monday, the first thing you do with your friends and colleagues is go get wasted, and so that's exactly what we did. We went out, we went out, we got. A, this is probably a weird interview compared to some of the other people that you've had on. The no, show. I love it. Uh, and, so, and so, you know, we went out, we went out to a Mexican restaurant down the street, just known for their really strong margaritas. Just started tossing them back. Went to the Rockies game that night. The Marlins were in town. I remember it because John Carlos Stanton had fifty nine home runs, and I totally thought he was going to hit sixty that night. And I was just telling my friends and former colleagues at this point, I was like, I got this idea for this bed sheets company, Sheets and Giggles. And, I, and they were like, okay, call. I was like, no, 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 think about it. It's a huge market. There's no brand differentiation. There's no like sustainable options. I was like ranting up. They probably just thought I was drunk, which to be fair, I was. And, uh, and so I, it was really the first thing that was on my mind really that very day that I got laid off. So I guess I had been thinking about it. I'd owned the domain for a few months. It had kind of been in the back of my mind. And it really just fit my personality. That's the other thing. I think that a lot of people discount how important a really, really good brand and brand name and personality is in a company. And frankly, in my last company, we were fighting sexual assault and violence. And so I was never allowed to touch the copy. They never let me do anything copy-wise. And I love writing writing copy. A lot of the copy you see on the website for sheetsgoggles.com is copy that I've written. And I love that kind of flippant, fun attitude. And it's very difficult to do that in a more serious industry. So I love the unearned seriousness of the bedsheets industry, you know, where everybody's like, oh, it's going to like change your life. And like your family is going to love you more. And like, you're going to like more. And there's, there's some truth to like better sleep, better immune system, better life. There's absolutely those truths. But the unearned seriousness and the unearned severity of everybody else in the industry really killed me. And so I really love just like being this really not very serious brand that also has some of the best reviews in the industry. I mean, we're, we've, we've got pictures of three men in the bed drinking wine and have avocado face masks on. We've got pictures of, you know, dogs smoking cigars, not actual lit cigars, obviously. And, you know, we've got all these fun different images and, and copy and content. And yet we've got 4.8 stars, 2,000 reviews, 450 reviews on Amazon, four and a half stars. And we just introduced our new comforter made out of the same material as our sheets which is crushing right now in terms of pre-orders and the amount of people that are raving about it. And it's just fun to kind of do things a little differently. And that was really what I wanted to do. And I just couldn't say no to this brand. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's a lot that I want to unpack in a few seconds, specifically around copywriting, because I think that is one of the most underexploited or undervalued pieces of kind of your digital persona. I want to explore deciding what channels to sell through Amazon on your site only. I want to explore how you think about earned versus paid media. Mm -hmm. But before we get there, so I, we're, we're post Eureka moment. You have the domain. Mm -hmm. You're putting in the work through this first mile. And then in June, you launch what ultimately amounts to be the number one all-time crowdfunded bedsheets campaign on Indiegogo mm -hmm, ever. Mm -hmm, yeah. So 
how like <laughs> take me through that story how much work did you have to put in up front before launching that and then <sighs> talk me through some of the tactics and mechanic of launching a very successful crowdfunding campaign well yeah, there's a lot to talk about there so i mean the amount of hours was ridiculous i was doing you know 18 hour days, seven days a week for a solid 12 months, you know, slept maybe four or five hours a night, fell asleep with my laptop open, woke up with it dead on my on my bed. You know, the, the maniacism of like a founder is really important to the company's success. Like, and I think that there's a lot of people that'll tell you like work-life balance is good and, and that, you know, oh, people aren't productive after eight hours a day or whatever it is. I, and like, yeah, like I, there's some truth to that, like, and I, I don't expect my team to ever work as hard as I do on this because it's just not their company and, and it's a poor expectation to have of people to care as much as about your baby that you do. But I do think there is more truth to if you're working 16 hours a day you're going to get approximately twice the amount of work done as somebody who's working eight hours a day. And and it doesn't mean that maybe the work quality is the same, but like it after the first eight or 10 hours, but it's certainly work and it's certainly output. And so it really the, the preparation for the crowdfund was everything. So to, to get into something a little more tactical for the listeners in terms of how to do a crowdfund properly, it really begins with goal setting. And for just to, for context, we raised two hundred eighty four thousand dollars in crowdfunded pre orders for bed sheets, which is still the most proud marketing achievement in my life that I convinced thousands of people to wait months for bed sheets, and that they gave us rave reviews at the end. That's something I'll always always remember as very special, and I have a very special connection with everybody who crowdfunded us into life. They're you know people who reach out to us who are like, hey, I was one of your backers on Indiegogo. They get the full press, full treatment works every time they reach out to us. And so, so to get a little more tactical for the audience, let's say you want to do a $100,000 crowdfunding campaign. The way that crowdfunding math works is you generally want to get 30% of your total in the first 24 hours. You want to get that because the way that it works is you know you have a huge boost, then a plateau, and then a little spike at the end of the campaign. And you also want to make sure that you are doing your best to get to the home page of whether it's Indiegogo or Kickstarter. You need to rise in your category to the top of your category to get people who are wayfinders, aka the millions of people who just type in Indiegogo.com to their browser every day to see what new and interesting projects are being launched. You want them to see you front and center if you're on the home page or their category. So you need a really, really, really big first day. And the way to achieve that is, so let's say I want a $100,000 campaign. I want 30% on day one. That means I need $30,000 on day one. If I have an average order value of $100, that means that I need 300 customers on day one. And if an email list reasonably converts at 3%, and most of your crowdfunding day one orders are going to come from an email list, then you need 10,000 emails in order to get 300 customers on day one at a 3% conversion rate period, end of story, that is all that matters in the world is getting those 10,000 emails. And so I started Heads Down January 2nd, 2018, just me and an intern and a uh, contracted out product team. And basically, we were having conversations with manufacturers simultaneously as we were doing all this. But really, we were, you know, shooting content, building landing pages, running Facebook ads, basically just gathering emails, right? We were asking people, hey, if you're picking up what we're putting down, if you like this brand, if you like this product idea, if you like the sustainability and the and the coolness and the softness, they're literally of a lower coefficient of friction than cotton, you know, telling people that Bed Bath & Beyond sells their eucalyptus sheets for $180 for a king, we're going to sell ours for $69 on the crowdfunding campaign. I thought $69 is a funny price for bed sheets. Nobody, nobody got the joke. 
Uh, and uh, <laughs> so I underpriced them for no reason. But that was the brand promise was like, we were going to get this incredible, incredible value if you backed us. And we ended up converting emails at like a, I think, 45% clip, which was absurd. And it really showed, really, really showed the, the power that the brand had, even in those early days with no validity, just words on a page and imagery. And so, yeah, so that was, that was how we prepped. We ended up launching on May 1st, 2018. So almost two years now. And we did $45,000 on day one and $284,000 for the campaign. That's amazing, man. Okay, so now that you have funds on hand, you have what appears to be actually definitely sufficient funds to put in initial purchase order. Talk me through after you finish the campaign, how much of the next 30 days, 90 days, year is specifically devoted to R&D actually creating the product? Or was that already done and now it's just a matter of fulfilling demand? Like, what did it look like? It was effectively already done. Yeah, I mean, March, we had, I think, inked our deal with our our contract manufacturer. Um, We had had all of our designs and everything taken care of. And, you know, we were we were really excited to get going, but we didn't we didn't put in the purchase order until I think the first week of April, which was still three or four weeks away from the first, the launch of the crowdfund. And we did that only because we saw the numbers on the emails. And so we basically knew, okay, we can kind of extrapolate out how, how this crowdfund is going to go in terms of the volume. In terms of commodities markets, when you're asking somebody to use their machine or equipment to make your product for you, your custom product, you basically need to convince them that you're going to be a good new company to bet on. And to that end, you need to give them a sizable amount of money that you're, you know, basically guaranteeing for them. And so I think our first purchase order was about $300,000, which is pretty nerve inducing in terms of a first time founder ponying up, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and committed for something that I don't know if it's going to, we haven't sold a single unit at that point. But I knew that if we were going to fulfill by our goal was all end of August, we ended up shipping on October 1st. So we were about 31 days late in terms of timeline. But I knew that if we were going to have any prayer at fulfilling in the late summer or fall, that we needed to begin production as early as April. And that's what we did. And so the good news is with fabrics is that you're able to actually begin making what's called the grayish goods ahead of time. So you can make the raw fiber and fabric before you decide on sizing, collar breakdown, that sort of thing. And so what we did was we began production on the fabric itself. We had 30% fabric reductions in that first batch. That was a nightmare. And and then we basically used the first week of pre-orders on the crowdfund to have a color and size breakdown and use that as our sample size and went from there. We ordered way too many blue. But yeah. other than that, that was the only outlier. We were really, 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 really off. Interesting. Yeah. So if we zoom out for just a second... Something that I find really interesting about founders taking on climate either explicitly or in some inadvertent way, but messaging, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Some yeah. some companies lead specifically with, oh, you've been buying this product or service before. This is the sustainable alternative to X or Y. Yeah, I hate, I hate that messaging. Okay, so talk me through your thinking around sustainability messaging, when people should lead into it, when it should be more of a compliment, but maybe talk me through how you've thought about this at Sheets and Giggles and then zoom out for a second 
about your opinions there. Americans, if they're one thing, they are fantastic consumers. They are trained from the day that they're born. Uh, the moment they can make words, they are given a little fake cash register and checkout stand for the grocery store and a little credit card swiper and they go to Disney World and they're given Mickey Mouse dollars and they buy their stuff with their Mickey Mouse dollars and then you get an allowance and like you Americans are just like from day one trained to consume. And so unfortunately, part of that is this consumer behavior, this kind of learned behavior that people have where they're always looking for the best deal, the best value. Right. Like they're like, and they don't care, like the different best value means different things to different people. And I even did a survey ahead of time with a thousand people where I, I asked them, what's the number one thing you look for in bed sheets? And it was softness, breathability, sustainability, colors from my bedroom patterns, like, you know, good fit, you know, a bunch of different things. And I included an option just to see how many people would pick it. It was like 13 option and uh, question. And one of the, one of the options said, best value to price ratio. And that one with like 40% of the vote on like a 13 question answer. And, and it was really interesting to me. It kind of confirmed this intuitive take I have. And so you need to be presenting value to people. And so when I see brands that are sustainable message, you know, the sustainability is the first and foremost benefit as to why you should buy I think that that's just a losing proposition. I think that you're implicitly telling the reader or the listener that this product is not as good as the unsustainable option, that you should buy it because you're a good person and you should make a sacrifice and, and you know, pay more for less or whatever it is. And I think that that is such a, such a, a losing proposition from the beginning. And so I always encourage people and, and just tell people that you know, you can be the most sustainable option in the world. You can make your bed sheets. I mean, what's the most sustainable thing in the world for bed sheets? It's, it's air. It's not to have any bed sheets, right? It's to sleep on the floor and like you'll never consume anything. But like, or you know, hemp, which is not very smooth. It's actually very rough and it doesn't make good for good bed sheets. And so you need a product that is superior to the unsustainable option. And then you close the sale or you close the messaging with, and of course, it's 2020. It is immoral to start a company that does not sell a sustainable product. This product is, a, is, of course, sustainable as well. And I think that that's been very successful for us where we lead with, you know, we have people with hyperhidrosis and excessive sweating, you know, who tell us it's the only thing that they can sleep on that keeps them cool throughout the night. We have people with contact dermatitis that tell us that, you know, this is the only thing that their skin can manage because it's so smooth and so soft and cotton can't compare anymore. We lead with that type of messaging, cool, softer than cotton, and then, of course, it is better for the earth, and here's why. And I think that that has been a much – that's always going to be a much better value prop if you can convince the person listening that they're actually making a selfish decision that is a selfless decision. And I, and I think that that is the core of, of the way sustainable products should market if they, if they want to win. I love that. So – I think what, I, what I'd love to do, I think we'd be remiss not to explore how you and the team at Sheets and Giggles have been navigating the times today, right? Mm, COVID, mm -hmm. it's impacting uh, thousands of lives, you know, thousands of businesses. And it's been really interesting to see how brands have responded. You know, some have actually picked up spend on marketing and <laughs> we've seen lifts in some categories. We've seen 
other businesses go complete 100% pause mm-hmm. on all things business. So how have you thought about navigating COVID today across kind of all core functions of the operation? So there's two, there's two ways I'll answer this. One is the good and one is the bad. So I'll leave it the bad. I'll leave it the bad. So in the bad, in the, in, cause I don't want to end on a sour note. <laughs> so in, on the, on the bad, there's multiple core risks to the company that we're facing every day, right? So we've seen in March, the last three weeks compared to the prior three week period right now, we saw a 30% reduction in sales on our website. And when it comes to our wholesale business, those deals are jeopardized and those timelines are jeopardized because those companies are, are reevaluating everything. On the supply chain side, we've had a total pause and shutdown of production, which is pushing, pushing back multiple, which is, I mean, safety first. Like, I don't, like, I don't care. I'll lose, I'll lose all the money in the world if it means somebody doesn't lose their life. But, you know, we've paused production. Uh, people are all on PTO right now. There's, you know, going to be multiple product line pushbacks, multiple, you know, new colors, new sizes, new products. We were planning on coming out with an April and May are now slated for potentially June or July at the earliest, which we were making half a million dollar bets in some of these categories. And so that's going to push back some revenue opportunities. And so to that end, we've been applying for relief, making sure that we're covered from all bases, because the longer this time horizon goes to 6, 12 months or longer, that's where the business is actually facing sort of systemic risk. So that's kind of all the, that's that's a lot of the bad. It's probably half of the bad. Uh, There's a few more things there that, that we're focusing on. We've gone full remote, team is safe, luckily you know, nobody in the team has lost anybody yet. I did have an extremely good friend of mine, one of my best friends, checked into the hospital last Thursday with this. One of my very good friends lost their father last Monday from this. So it's, you know, it's been a challenging, not not for, you know, me, I'm very lucky my family's been unaffected thus far, you know, and, and I hope it, I hope that we come out of this hole. And, you know, there, there's a lot of things that are on my mind right now, both personally and professionally. And it's definitely, I think that one of the difficult things for a lot of people listening right now is I'm sure it's very difficult to keep the off the field stuff from affecting the on the field stuff, so to speak. And, and, you know, but in terms of the good news, what the team and I have done is we basically said, okay, you know, day one, we were like, all right, we are actually in a position compared to other brands to help. So how can we help? Well, we have a really robust business in terms of our unit economics. So let's take pretty much our entire profit margin and donate it. And so to that end, we are every sale we've gotten in the last two weeks or three weeks, we've, I think it's, I think it's been almost 20 days now, like 19 days. We've donated 20% to Colorado's COVID-19 emergency relief fund. And so that's, I think that just passed, um, I think it just passed $30,000 donated. And so that's been a really uh, nice light for the team. We can't make the donations unless we make the sales. So it's, you know, tied to our company success as well and our cash flow which is both what I love about the company has always been from day one. We baked in these tree donations with every order. We donate 1% of our profits to charity, 1% of our equity to charity, our time and products. So we've always baked this into kind of our variable cost structure. So this is a continuation of that just on a much larger scale and, and a tighter scale in terms of timeline. So we can help as many people as possible as quickly as possible. We were called by the city of Denver uh, a few weeks ago, and they said, "Hey, we're asking around for bed sheets in Denver. Your name keeps coming up. Can you guys donate 300 sheet sets to these emergency, you know, motel shelters that we're building? 
for COVID-19 overflow and we said yes. And so we sent them 228, pretty much our entire inventory of twin and twin XL bed sheets. Well, twin and twin XL are a small percentage of our sales overall, like 2%. But, you know, it's pretty much all the inventory we had on hand in those sizes. So we're sold out there. It was tens of thousands of dollars in, in retail value that we donated. And, uh, you know, just, it, so there's good. We're doing, that's my thing. And then that's the, the good news that I just want to share is that we're helping. And then there's something I'm really interested in that we're going to be pushing on a little bit harder. I got an interview about it this week. But I'll just give a shout out to with this audience. It's called COVID Co-op. So if you go to covidcoop.com, which is just the way it's spelled, the way it sounds, covidcoop.com. Basically, we've got a consortium of brands that we're putting together. We've only got about 10 so far, but I'm hopeful to grow it to 100 in various categories of people that are donating a percentage of their sales to COVID-19 emergency relief funds. And you can search by category, and then eventually we'll add keyword in location and small business verification. And basically, you'll be able to, if you're an American sheltering in place and you're ordering goods online, you'll be able to start your product search at covidcoop.com find companies in different categories, go to their website, shop, and then you'll know that by going to their website from covidcoop.com, a percentage of their order will be donated to a COVID-19 emergency relief fund. So we, we partnered with givedirectly.org for that effort. And yeah, so it's been, it's been, there's good and bad. Dude, so first of all, this is a testament to... Quite frankly, this is your leadership, despite all the chaos in the background. And you are a startup, right? Like by definition, you've been around for just a couple years. And despite that, and despite the existential risk, you're still contributing in a massive way. And I'm looking at covidcall.com right now. I mean, dude, even, even this effort is... Quite frankly, I mean, this is like flawlessly executed. Thanks. It was really a, a, a volunteer front-end developer built this with me, a uh, student developer. She's fantastic. Her name's Tammy. She and I put this together with a, a couple other volunteers. And I'm really excited about this. I really want this to catch on. I want other brands, sustainable brands. You know, and, and just for any brands listening out there, you know, it's it's a percentage of sales that come from covidcoop.com. And it's total volunteer effort. There's no affiliate fees, no data collected. There's no monetization or anything. It's basically just a way for you to say, hey, if you're, you know, it's like, an, it's like a donated affiliate fee, right? Like where it's like, if you get a sale from this website traffic, then you'll, you'll make a 5% or more donation to a COVID-19 relief fund. And I think, yeah, so I'd love for more people to sign up. It takes two seconds at covidcoop.com slash pledge. And it's a really, really cool website that I think has the potential to catch on. And so I'm going to be emailing a bunch of founders about that this week. Last week, I was kind of preoccupied with the PPP stuff, but there's good and bad. We can't help anybody if we don't make sales. I think that I appreciate your, that's really kind of you to say, you know, I think that when you get laid off at 1 p.m. on a Monday from a company that you spent years of your life building and, and that you really cared about, there's like a little break that happens inside of you. And I think that that is something I've carried with me. And I try to make sure that when I think about my team members, my teammates, I've got different people that rely on me for their salary, for their rent, for their healthcare, for their stability and their continuity of their family. And it is definitely something that I think about in terms of how I felt that day and how I never want anybody to feel that feeling, that suddenness because of poor decisions that I made or, or the preventable mistakes that I made. And 
So it definitely bleeds into how I manage the company. And I, I told my team this week on Monday, I reiterated, I think my friend losing their father last week really affected me because I, I feel just like this is something that a lot of people are going to be dealing with in the next 30 to 60 days. And so I emailed my team last week and just told them that yeah, you know, work is work is work, family's family, one's infinitely more important than the other. And make sure they're spending uh, as much time as they need with their families right now. And the business we've set up, we've set it up in a really good, strong way. We've got great reviews that speak for themselves. We've got great word of mouth. I don't want to say that we can, we're not taking this seriously. We are. I'm probably staying up working until two or three in the morning every night. I see my teammates online at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So there's a lot of work being done, but at the same time, I just always want to make sure if we're not helping people and we're not being additive to our own lives, then there's really no point to the company. So Colin, I know, you know, we have just a, a few minutes left here, but I think what I'm noticing and, and hearing from you throughout this conversation is in many ways that the exact kind of criteria set of values and operating philosophies that any employee, any team member would want to see in a leader. So I'm also extremely, I'm also extremely disorganized. So don't, like, so don't like, there's a lot of, there's, there's, you know, I, I really appreciate that. I do. And, and I'll, I'll let my team know you said that, but you know, it's but even <laughs> despite the disorganization, I, I just want to, I'd love to ask you the question, you know, who has had the greatest impact on your learning here? You know, who can you tip your hat to that has shaped some of these operating philosophies, some of these kind of the, the criteria set of moral values that you kind of lead with every day, who, who or what can you uh, afford that? Three big ones. First and foremost is my father. He's been president of his law firm that he founded in, I think, 1991 is when he founded there, or 1989. And he just recently merged his law firm with a larger law firm. And after 30 years of running his own company and growing up and going to his office as a kid and watching him interact with people and hearing him bring work home and talk about work at home and every day, every day. How's your day, Dad? Brutal. As every, every single day is, is the answer, you know, but then he'd tell me about how it was and challenges and employees. And it was always just really, really, really helpful for me as a kid to to kind of see that. And my mom as well has run her own business since 1998, an acupuncture office. She was a court reporter, went back to school and became an acupuncture physician. And she's now helped a lot of people with a ton of different ailments, including myself with my herniated disc and my neck pain. So I've got a lot of, a lot, a lot of empathy and a lot of business kind of leadership from my parents. Secondly, I'd say the Techstars network. I've done Techstars twice now. Uh, one for the for first company I was with that I got laid off from and the other with my company in, in January of last year. Techstars is a global accelerator for those that don't know. And uh, they basically give you 100K of investment. They put you in a room with nine other companies for three months and pressure cook you until you pop, but until you get a lot of work done as well. And the mentorship afforded to me by that network has been transformative in my professional career. And then thirdly, and this is um, <laughs> very honest and very true, it's also the bosses that I've had in my career, both good and bad, and CEOs that I've worked for, different startups, different size companies. I've worked for the world's largest hedge fund uh, in Connecticut, Bridgewater Associates. I've worked for a 10-person uh, recruiting company. I've worked for a five-person team for this startup that I was at last time that grew into a 30-person team. 
and I've had good managers. I've had bad managers. I've had the narcissistic CEO. I've had the control freak CEO. I've had the hands-off CEO. I've kind of been, I've gotten verbally abused. I've gotten, (laughs) you know, and and I think the bottom line for me is like, this all kind of comes together to build this picture of reality that I'd love for others to start thinking about too. And that I try to train my team on, which is like, Human beings are generally not meant to live the way that we live and not from like a sort of a kumbaya perspective, but more of like with most corporate jobs, you have to beg to see your family during the holidays and they can say no. It's ridiculous. It's like the most insane thing in the entire world. And so I I try to conceptualize things that this weird society that we built for ourselves and tell my team that this culture and this company is about independence and freedom and freedom from that nonsense and if you can function in a fairly free organization that doesn't have a lot of arbitrary rules or meetings or work cadence, and you can deal with a little bit of dysfunction as a trade-off for that, then you should come work for us. And, and I think that that's been kind of an influence on me as well, just looking at the past jobs I've had and how I've disagreed with sort of the arbitrariness of the corporate uh, culture. Mm-hmm. Colin, Seriously, the amount of things that I could memorialize from this conversation already is, I mean, definitely more than I can put <laughs> on my, my two hands at the moment. I, I want to uh, leave off with one more question, and it's one of my favorite questions over the last few conversations I've had with founders like yourself. Definitely more lightweight in nature, but I think the unifying element or denominator across all founder personalities is you're constantly thinking of new ideas, right? You have these, maybe it's in your notepad and, you know, maybe you have a physical journal where you jot these ideas down, but constantly it's like this machine that's that's pumping every single day. And, and one day you think it's the next trillion dollar idea and the next day you think it's the worst thing you've ever thought of and you never revisit it again. So my question for you is what are one of those ideas that you sat on for days and you were convinced, you know, is the best thing that happened. And for whatever reason, it's now rotting away in your idea graveyard. Yeah, that's a great question. I I think that's probably one of the, the more fun questions to maybe give somebody out there a spark for something. I've gotten one that I just, I don't think I'm gonna start but I, it's so good that I'm almost like hesitant to give it out there. But I think I think it'd be a really cool company for when this all kind of not for maybe it's a good time to set it up right now. Not a good time to pitch it right now. It's called Work from Rome instead of Work from Home. Actually, 2021 would be a, a perfect year to launch this company because then you could be like, you know, why work from home when you can work from Rome? Like you just spent a year working from home, like you should work from Rome. But so. Basically, the the idea is if you've heard of Remote Year, Remote Year was a startup in Denver that had this really good idea. I think they're still they're still around. They're still doing fine. But basically, it was like for thirty grand, right? So for twenty five hundred dollars a month, you can spend a year traveling twelve different cities working remotely. And it was a really cool concept. Like it's like, hey, as long as your boss is cool with it and your employer is good with you working remotely, give us thirty thousand dollars. We'll pay for your rent. We'll pay for your airplane tickets. All you got to pay for is your food. And when you look at rent and airplane tickets for 12 different cities, 12 different apartments over the course of a year, 
thirty thousand dollars is actually not that bad of a price tag. It's actually like what you might expect to spend for a year's worth of traveling. But then you know you get to work in the uh, five days a week, and you're expected to work, but you just get to see the world. The problem with the business model is that a lot of people were applying, getting approved, wanting to give the money to them, and they went to their employer and they were like, "Hey, can I work remotely for a year?" And their employer was like. What are you talking about? No, of course you can't do that. But next year is going to be an interesting year for remote work and these type of discussions. But the idea behind work from Rome was, and I own workfromrome.com if anybody wants to buy it off me, is that instead of doing 12 cities in 12 months and a $30,000 price tag, you remove the friction of, and and by the way, that very limits your potential target market as well to like 25-year-old software engineers without, without a dog or a family. And so basically what you would do is you'd say for one month, you pick a month out of the year you want to do it, different rates for different months. We will set you up in an apartment in Rome. You work from Rome for a month and then you come back. And the company gets a specialized three. It'll be $3,000 instead of 30. So you actually have a more per month price tag in terms of the premium that you're charging people. It's a more attainable price tag for people to think about spending for a month in Rome of $3,000 versus, you know, whatever hotels might cost for, the, for that time of a trip. You set people up in one location, you get a logistics and expertise specialty in terms of dealing with one locale and one area and one set of apartment buildings. And then people can more manageably go to their employer and ask for a month remotely. They can go to their family, they can you know get a dog sitter, whatever it is, and they can actually do a month much more attainably than a year remotely. And I think that would have a much wider market with a much more attainable uh, time abroad. And so that's my I love my, this. my favorite idea, and I'd love somebody to make it happen because I'd like to work from Rome for a month. Colin, this is a genius idea. Think about all the people who talk about regretting never having studied abroad and I know, if only they could experience something of that nature. Right. I mean you pair you pair all these people in a single apartment building. Right, right, right. You yeah, already yeah, have yeah, camaraderie and like things in common yes. and like social. Yeah. It's and it that's why I never liked the remote year model and I feel bad because they're in Denver and I like them. I like I've met them all. Like they're really cool people. Like it's a it's an awesome idea. But it's like a year, 12 different cities in a year. Like after, I feel like after like four months, I would just be like, oh my God, I am, I'm over this. Like I gotta get the hell out of it. Like I gotta go home. And so mm-hmm. I, and, and then like just from a, a reasonableness and a logistics perspective, it just never made sense to me how they were going to turn that corner and get people to, you know, get that year approved by their employer. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of why I really like the one month, like work from Rome idea, work from Rome.com. Mm-hmm. I've got it. Somebody buy it from me. <laughs> Call it. I know. I know we've gone a couple minutes over. So before we part ways, I, I'd love to roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions? Anything you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. The only thing I'd say is if you are at home right now, if you're working from home, there's a lot going on right now. A lot of craziness. I hope everybody out there is safe. That's the major takeaway. Is just you know do your part, be safe, stay sane, stay happy. You know, if you'd like some new bed sheets for your bed to make yourself more comfortable, obviously, shameless shout out, go to sheetsgiggles.com, grab a set of our eucalyptus bed sheets. You will not regret it, I promise you. And just in terms of business ideas or if anybody's starting something out there that I can be helpful for, feel free to reach out, Colin at sheetsgiggles.com. You know, I think that I'd love to see more sustainable businesses started that are more aggressive in terms of their goals and and what they're looking for in terms of impact on the business world. I, I think that the best thing I ever heard from anybody was the former VP of growth at Facebook, even though Facebook's a gross company, that the former VP of growth growth at Facebook said, 
you know, you, if you are a moral person, if you are a principled person, if you have good ideals and good values, you have a moral obligation to make as much money as possible. Because if you don't make that money, somebody else will make that money. And somebody else who makes that money might have the opposite and antithesis of your worldview as theirs. And so if you think that you are trying to change the world for the better, you have an obligation to get out there, make that money, and spend that power and money on changing the world to be a better place. Otherwise, somebody else is going to do it, and you don't know what they believe. So that's, uh, that's kind of the way that I operate. I love that. Colin, thank you for your lessons, your knowledge. Thank you for everything you're doing for the COVID relief process. Again, uh, anyone interested, go to covidcoop.com. Colin, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Pete. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at In Good Hands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.